We speak. Our words. We listen. 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 This is Spectrum Voices Conversation here at 6 pm, 7 30 pm UK time every Sunday, uh, 1 pm to 2 30 pm Eastern Standard Time in the United States. This is the Facebook part of uh, Sunday, the 7th of January 2024. So, the first one I shared, well, not the first one, the most recent one I shared was from Neurodivergent Lou, and that's a blogger who's finding a place in a neurotypical world and has over 22,000 followers. And what they've shared is an interesting one. It's about social cues. As an autistic person, I'm constantly replaying social mistakes in my head. As an autistic person, I have more previous experience of negative social interactions than the average person a result of living as an autistic person in a non-autistic majority world. My brain processes and communicates in a way that is inherently different than non-autistic people. This means that there are more examples of social mistakes to draw upon. It often feels like everyone else has a rule book of how to act and to be in social situations. That means that they just know what to do all the time. However, I feel I don't have this secret rule book. I am making it up as I go, playing trial and error socially. This can make social mistakes feel more distressing because we may be aware that there isn't much we can do to prevent it from happening in the future because we didn't realise a social rule or social norm existed in the first place. It can feel like a lack of control. Autistic people may also be more sensitive to rejection due to previous experiences of being rejected. For example, as autistic people, we may be used to people rejecting us for being too much or too weird, or for other autistic traits which are viewed in a negative way. For me, my own experiences of rejection means that I tend to be hyper-focused on situations where I have been rejected or may perceive that I am being rejected even if this isn't actually the case. We may be particularly harsh on ourselves even if we feel we have made a social mistake. One way that this may show up is replaying negative experiences in our head of where we perceive that we've made a social mistake according to the norms of neurotypical society. We may also become preoccupied with imagining scenarios of how things can go wrong in the future. Some autistic people describe how this particularly impacts them before they're going to sleep. Autistic person may also have a tendency to process the detail before then even processing the bigger picture. This means that we may remember the specific detail of the time where something went wrong socially and replay that in our head. This can make it feel particularly vivid, like we are back in the situation again. It also feels inherently related to how autistic people may be prone to repetitive thinking. It may feel like we are stuck on a thought or a situation, unable to stop thinking about it. 
this can be incredibly overwhelming and frustrating. Autistic people sometimes struggle with emotional regulation too, and we may feel our emotions particularly intensely. We may also experience all or nothing thinking, thinking we have a tendency to think in extremes and struggle to see the middle ground. For example, we may feel our social mistake is the worst thing in the world and find it very difficult to regulate. It's quite lengthy and quite powerful, but I can relate to that with other thoughts. I have to analyse causes and alternatives or lack of them. Um, fault or not fault. Anything upsetting, I have to use every thinking time slot I've got for a, for a while after it's put it in a, a reasoned place. Can't just take it a, a reaction that says, oh, that's what it was. So I reason my way through coping through trying to do anything of right for situations. It seems tricky to me because part of my positive association with my autistic self is not seeing differences between the way I act socially and other people act socially as social mistakes. I just don't see the way society works as correct or as the best way. Maybe we need to let go of the idea that we're getting it wrong and there was a rule book somewhere else a bit more. Because if we continue to think like that, we will always be beating ourselves up. Well, I certainly ne never going to say they're correct, but it's the practicality of dealing with a particular situation and getting a bad result. It's just the, the dealing with the... Um, where each side is. Yeah, I can relate to that. I mean, the older I've got, the more I'm accepting myself, my identity, and I don't think that society out with me is normal and I'm in the wrong. But I still feel that because of the way society feels to me, it's like trying to fit in. And the sort of kind of perfection mindset that I've got is like any daft mistake you see in a conversation is kind of haunting. I mean, for instance, I was speaking to a neighbour and instead of saying to them after the conversation, enjoy your weekend in terms of, because I've just gone into their house, I was saying, enjoy yourself. And I felt it was a silly thing to say, like, enjoy yourself going into your house. You know, it's, I mean, even we met things like that, kind of, what I said was a bit daft there. I don't think they bothered, they just walked away, but it, it can become more, you know, more extreme than that. Like, the mistakes you've made, like if you had a fallout with someone, or a misunderstanding of a situation that caused a fallout, or just felt, it made things a lot more difficult than it could have been if I chose to say something or do something the right way. But I do remember a lot of times in school that I used to place situations in my head of how things are going to happen and that actually kept me from sleeping. So I could totally relate to what's been discussed and what the post is talking about. 
I'm a bit better now than I was then, but I still have this habit of trying to play out scenarios that haven't happened yet so that I'm prepared to tackle it. That's why I'm particularly good at things like uh, setting up agendas and all that for meeting, because that's me trying to be in control of a kind of future event. But obviously life isn't like that, so I can relate to that very much. The saying a word that they take as stupid and that's after they have done, you see in their context why they did, and yet you never thought of it beforehand. That's a really raw one. Because then why didn't you think of it? How is knocks like that not going to happen? How do you know whether they've had an equitable number of similar knocks or whether they do better overall? Then feel insecure, more pressure. I think a lot of it is about choosing your people. However hard you work at it, however much you stress over it, there's a, a reasonable purported percentage of people in the world that just want things to happen in the way they see they should happen. Their culture, their what, their, even the family culture, never mind the wider culture. And so everything outside their group is weird or odd or whatever. And you you just can't reach such a large group of people giving up on some people might be the best way forward it's difficult to do but it has to be i don't know thought about i suppose yep it's like choosing your environment to make it safer or feel safer to you i've certainly did that in the past or some people that i used to i don't tend to avoid but i tend to you know plan it better in terms of how we deal with certain people and i would think that my social setup now anyways, people are kind of more accepting and and understanding of the way I am anyway, so a lot of it is down to me just over trying to over perfect and overthinking. That kind of artistic overthinking sometimes kinda of comes into play. Even though there's no need for it. It's just trying to prepare for something you can't control. It's just a bad habit. But and the main things are actually okay. It's certainly a post that got a lot of other people talking about it. It's described by somebody as so well articulated and very relatable and yes to all that. And it has a lot of different reactions to it. So Neurodivergent Lou has said it in the way that some people you know, express it. So that's a good thing, isn't it? The next one... It's an interest. It's something we've touched on before about language. This is from Yale Clark, the developmental psychologist, and I hope I did the pronunciation correctly. Anxiety and so CD in children and parents. Special focus on autistic and ADHDers. What it says is, for the billionth time, I do not have autism and I do not work with ASD kids. I am autistic and I work with autistic kids. So basically ASD is like um, autistic spectrum disorder, which is not 
the kind of language that, that's kind of preferable. And I totally understand that. So it's about the language. There was links and comments below, but I haven't actually went into it. But that was what I wanted to share was the quote about the language itself and how people saying having autism and being autistic, different language, more positive language is very important for many people, if not the majority. I don't want to see all because it's not for all people. What do you think? Was this identification of self with the phenomenon? Because everyone's preferences should be one of those things like pronouns. It's, um, that there shouldn't be. There's one right answer for everyone, but it's the self descriptions one to have regard for each person. Just Justin makes the point: identification of self. I think what Morris said is very important because there's this modern thing that if you're autistic and you don't use autism first language, identity first language, that you're not quite up to the mark with the whole new modern way of being autistic. And there's a kind of also most a snobbery about it. And some people do prefer to say that they are somebody with autism because that's still how they feel. They feel as though they are a person and the autism is something that's almost separate from them or something that they can keep in a in another place. It's not right to be messing around and telling people that they have to use language in a certain way because language is very flexible. And I feel personally a little bit offended by the idea that somebody sticks it in capitals, that they are telling us how we should describe ourselves. I also think it's in, if, if that person was in front of me and they shout in capitals, do not use this way of speaking with me, I would find that hurtful and difficult and offensive. If they spoke to me gently and said, oh, I prefer it this way, then obviously I would always work with somebody's preferences. But this whole idea of, oh, I've now decided it should be this way for myself, and so everybody else is causing me offence and hurt if they choose to do something differently, it's just not necessary. We need to tone it down. I just think it's... I mean, maybe the way it's coming across is maybe more strong than it's maybe intended, but if it's putting capitals and all that, it's obviously illustrating. It's like, you know, you listen to me, this is the point I must make. And I totally agree with what you're saying. Language is flexible, and the autism and autistic, I notice that sort of, that really grates people one way or the other. But we can't really say to... I mean, I did a, a blog about my own journey and I went through the, the kind of different tiers in terms of how I looked as autism, disability and then it became a superpower and then it became an identity as I got older and as time progressed and of course as I got older kind of perceptions, society and all that, autistic society kind of obviously changed a lot as well so I totally understand what you're saying and there's ways of approaching this, but I can understand what, why somebody would say that, but it's a way of actually how you express it and not telling people what how they should say something unless they're describing 
you. But even if they are, it's there's a there's a way to to not correct people, but you know, just to educate on the identity and the words when someone is talking directly to the person who feels that they should be described in a certain way the the identity. I mean, I would encourage people to see their autism as absolutely intrinsic to themselves. Um, I would encourage people to see their autism as an absolute part of their identity, but I wouldn't concern myself too strongly with somebody who says still that they have autism. That's not something that seems important enough to me. It's a shame that it does seem very, very important for some people. It, it, but, you know, they make their own choices. They've taken on a dogma, though, that that's picked up and circulated. That's more than their... That's become more than their own choices. So that's the return to being. The next one that I've shared is from Scone Autism Scotland. And... For a Scottish organisation, it's basically built on foundation of knowledge, understanding of supporting autistic women, girls, and non-binary individuals. And they've got an event coming up online called Swan Training, and it's called Increasing Understanding of Autism. It's for professionals and allies. It's Monday, the twenty ninth of January. 6pm to 8.30pm UK time. It's an information session. And they say that this training is open to anyone looking to increase foundational knowledge and understanding of supporting autistic women, girls and non-binary people from a lived experience perspective. This session is for professionals and allies who are working with and supporting autistic individuals in health, education and the community or at home as well as individuals who have an interest in learning more about autistic identity and autistic experience. The session will cover autistic identity and intersectionality, neurodiversity, myths and misunderstandings, la labels, spiky profiles and diversity, one-tropism, Developing a positive autistic identity, language stigma, validation and masking. Importance of belonging and authentic connections. Managing and working with energy levels such as burnout, boundaries and expectations. Sensory experiences. Feeling heard, understood and accepted. Autistic communication and empathy. And what is meaningful, differing perspectives. So it covers quite a lot of ground. Yeah, I hope they're successful with that. It looks as though it's aimed at the professionals as well, for professionals and allies. So we know Swan Scotland to be a group that is autistic and autistically led. So having autistic people speaking directly to professionals and allies is, is a good thing, isn't it? The more they get around, generally the better. Once they get around everyone. I just like the scope, what they're trying to cover on the one session. And I think it's enough time and they'll probably have follow-ups, but I just like how they're not just sticking to one, they're actually covering quite a lot and it's just illustrating 
how <laughs> just breaking the stereotypes and it's like educational as well as information, which is great to, to see happening. They're doing good work. The next post is from Pete Warmby, autistic author, autistic writer and speaker on autism and autistic lived experience. And he's sharing his first book, which is about his own interests and which shaped his life. And his book is called What I Want to Talk About, How Autistic Special Interests Shape a Life. So it's just a, another book just to make people aware of. It's uh, autistic specific. That's what I've been beginning to do in the last uh, couple of uh, podcasts. And I'm seeing a lot more of it now. Is Maybe it was Christmas time and they were up to that. But, you know, the books, you know, the, the kind of the specific autistic books out there, the autistic living experience and the subject around autism, identity, etc., so it's just good that there's these things out there for people to see. I can see that there's some comments on Facebook where people have actually said that it's a good deal for them. It's something that they've had, they're halfway through the book. What a talent for writing he has. So that's cool. And very much enjoyed reading the book largely because he enjoys reading about what makes people tick. It's odd that it's special interests as a phrase, <laughs> but then you have to use the phrase that other people are using, even if he might want to call it passions or whatever. Special interests is the phrase that people use still. Um, so sometimes you have to use the language that other people are using. Well, it's, it's less heavy than saying obsessions. Because obsession is quite negative, so you say special interest, it's, it, it's, it's moving towards the positive scope, so it's a step forward, and also it's making people that are unaware, you know, that, you know, so people know what he's writing about, as, as, as you've just said. The next one is from Christy Forbes, Autism and ND Support, public figure, Autism and Neurodiverse Individual and Family Support Specialist from Australia. This one is quite lengthy but I think it's quite important to just to read it out so bear with me. It's a picture of herself and basically what they're describing is this is an image of me deep in the trenches around a decade ago. My husband would message from work each day and ask how things were. Some days I couldn't speak. I send in pictures and this was one of those days, and I remember and still feel that exact moment. I was in the bathroom sobbing again. I'm just shifting into recovery from that time around now. Lots of therapy, writing, singing, connection with country. But back then, for six years, we were unable to leave the home as a family. I could count on one hand the amount of times I went anywhere. There isn't enough time or language or space to be held for the hell that was. The loneliness, the isolation, I just didn't just feel alone. I was. I was completely alone. I want to see these pictures. I want to show them. Why? Because I never want to forget. Why? Because nobody comes into this space and this culture knowing what they do today. Nobody. 
If you knew a diversion and think that your life experience is not valuable to others, I want to encourage you with love to consider other ones. When I started out in this space, I was terrified. I didn't tell anyone I was autistic for a while. I was frightened that I'd not be believed. That happened and still does. Or that people would think that I was unreliable in my thinking and doing because I'm autistic. That happened and still does. There were a good group of us internationally writing about our experiences online and the courage that it took just to show up and write with honesty was also terrifying. My stomach would churn and I was dysregulated a lot with both the bad stuff and the good stuff. But all I did was write. I wrote about my children and I and how we connect. I wrote about hope and love and change and the people started to show up. It has not been easy, boy oh boy was it not. But this I know for sure, it was so worth it. Families, carers, professionals need to learn from your lived experience. Your experience, your pain, your joy can be transformative for others. So many times I get caught in the trap of thinking that I know is common knowledge and of no use to anyone anymore. But that's because I move in neurodivergent circles and this is our culture. We know what we know and it's normal for us to know this stuff because of our identity and our culture. Families, carers and many professionals don't know this. They've been told otherwise. Much of their support is informed by archaic textbook versions of autism written by non-neurodivergent people studying via the biased lens of behaviour. Refrigerator mother theory has not died. It has only morphed and grown into the fabricated or induced illness. Professionals engaging in mandatory reporting and falsely accusing parents of abuse or neglect when children cannot attend school. The belief that parents are causing their child's disability. Think parents have been told that anxiety is why their child struggles, etc. and more. I'm not asking anyone to save people. This is not saverism. It is being in community. It is showing up, what's and all. It's privilege and not all of us can do it because not all of us are safe to do so. Nobody is a leader in this space. Neither divergence is a human experience, marginalised and pathologised as a disorder. I meet people in my communities and my programmes as one of them because I am. We are a community. Decolonising my work means breaking down hierarchies. That model has to go and being a PDA autistic, I can't engage with people in power and balances anyway. Being in community for me means I share life, I share my joy, I share my pain and I know I don't have all the answers, nor would I ever claim to or enforce a generic framework. I see so many neurodivergent people arguing in comment sections and getting really passionate about their stance. The passion is wonderful and it belongs somewhere that will help others. The arguing is not. Abusing families and carers is counterproductive to positive neurodivergent identity and culture. It is counterproductive to helping coming generations of neurokindred. Many of these families consist of parents who are unidentified autistic, among other forms of neurodivergent, and they often don't know. They too are suffering. 
They have lost so much in their bid to support and sustain connection with their child, and their drive to advocate for the right to education and their courage to live, be and do differently, to keep their child alive. Some of us are thriving, some of us are surviving, and many of us move between the two. It is often the nature of this identity when navigating a neuronormative world. I know we carry trauma. I know we're often abused or trolled or treated awfully by others. I know. Trust me, I know. I'll never forget my introduction to the autistic community. I was on a thread, arguing something made my child autistic, that there was no family history of autism. More like there was no family history of neuronormativity. And an autistic man said to me, plain and simple, Christy, your child was born autistic and they're meant to be this way, and they probably got it from you, it's highly likely you're autistic. I was not angry, but hopeful, the rest is history. But there's a difference between being straight up, like we autistics can be, and piling on a parent who uses a word we don't, or who doesn't know all the things. Nobody comes into this culture knowing all things, not even neurodivergent people. We're all the same team, we are neurokin. I was so much denial my lifetime of masking. I was going into the autistic spaces and asking questions like, why does my child rock? And I was made fun of. I distinctly recall someone in the community telling me, oh, we all like to rock on our ergonomic chairs while working on maths problems, and I believed it. I didn't get that I was being made fun of because I'm so literal, because I'm autistic. But when someone helped me realise I felt so much shame, just as I did all the other times in my life where I asked for help, agonising to be so being PDA and so try to fit in. Sometimes people are shit. It's true and we all know it. But there's a significant difference between condition to live one life from foundation of lives, capitalism, ableism, racism, sexism and all the other pillars and balances and social hierarchies that stem for white supremacy and having a child that is suffering so much they no longer want to be there in their primary years. In early childhood, and the parent that misdirects their struggle and fire off at neurodivergent people, that's never okay. As parents, we carry our turmoil as energy and we take it home to our children. It riddles our lives and our connection with our babies that are put in constant, and when if the miracle happens that a parent or professional or carer begins to deconstruct and deassemble that foundation, I want to be there to meet them. Waiting for many autistic people, identified or not, often begins with postnatal depression. And at times it's a lifetime of unidentified, unseen, unheard and unknown trauma beginning. It's slow and steady trickle into our lives. It's no longer having the space and downtime we used to have. It's being responsible for not only the needs of another human, but raising neurodivergent humans takes a paradigm shift. It's a shift in neurodivergent culture, but it's also coming home to oneself. This is huge. It is life-altering. It is grief and relief and joy and pain and loss and excitement. So I work on myself. I sit with discomfort and go into it. I mess up. With people in the community, with my writing, with my speaking, with my children and myself, and where appropriate and possible, I make amends. But family needs us. 
they need your experience. Our parents, families and carers, our professionals and supporters need to learn from lived experience. The community will need you in whatever way you feel safe and comfortable to show up. The changes in my own life, my own circumstances, my own unmasking, my own relationships, my own unschooling, my own going solo, my own leaving the teaching profession, my own stuff has been met with community each and every time this year. Compassion, empathy, love and passion. This is community. Wow. I guess parents have more community though because they're interested in kids. I think that's tricky. I think most mothers tend to find that they end up getting, for the first time in their lives, more isolated when they have a child. I mean, online community, I don't mean in person, I could understand about the practicality of using their time. I think that there's a kernel of truth in what you say, that if you have a child, you do have the opportunity to rub along with more people and build a community around that. But I would say that if you're an autistic parent and you have an autistic child, the way the neurodivergent community, the everyday folk, are organized it often makes you excluded from the community the community she's talking about is her own neurodivergent community isn't it but parenting among them saying i think parenting as an autistic person and having an autistic child is one of the trickiest places to be in i don't know how to explain it you're pushed up against an awful lot of authority through schooling and medical people. You're pushed up against a lot of very conventional thinking. You're, com you're pushed up against a lot of society's expectations in a very concentrated way in a very short period of time. And that affects a non-neurodivergent parent with an autistic person because society says they have a disabled child and they feel excluded. And then there's another layer on top of that if you're an autistic person because there's a limited number of autistic people with autistic children out there. It, it, to me, it, it's one of the the most tricky positions that, that people can find themselves in. I'm just saying she's found a, a community of them then. That's another branch of community and we know there is a lot of momentum around advising and sharing about kids exactly because of these problems and pressures. I was looking at the difference in where you are in relation to community with other folks such as the older that we've been concerned about. As for the professionals listening to us, well, they always need to. I guess this is a, a message in the bottom. As much as many of our efforts have been, and everyone's. 
Yeah, but when she says community, she is speaking about the, the flexibility of the neurodiverse community, which, as you know, happens mostly online. And she's saying she's making mistakes in that, and then she tries to make amends in that. But it's all important, it's all valuable, and the sharing of experiences between different neurodiverse people and getting as many of those messages in the bottle out there is important and I agree with her, I think it is. I also think that cathartically expressing yourself is a very good thing to do. But she points out that as a community, autistic people and the autistic spaces are very difficult spaces. And she puts forward a lot of suggestions that where they, they fall in some places. But overall, she's saying compassion, empathy, love and passion is the part of community. And community is something that's wide enough and flexible enough for people to find their own spaces within it, I suppose. I like what she said. I'm going to read it again when I'm offline. The next one is from Autistic and ADHD, that's me. And a public figure and the description says I'm Emma I found out in 2019 that I have ADHD and in 2021 I am autistic and I'm from London United Kingdom and basically what they say is uh, ADHD and autism are not sentences it's not the end of the world when the doctor tells you that either you or your child is ADHD or they're autistic Getting diagnosed as being autistic and having ADHD has been the best thing to ever happen to me. The understanding and the compassion we can finally give ourselves is and has been a lifesaver for me, as I'm sure it has been for many others. I failed school, couldn't study, and had suicidal thoughts before either my diagnosis. Life was pretty bleak. I have studied and qualified as a Reiki master meditation and mindfulness teacher and spiritual life coach and I'm now studying hypnotherapy and I've just passed my psychology diploma with a distinction. If I can do it, so can you and so can your child and children. I know days can be tough, I know better than anyone but I also know that with a diagnosis, understanding and healing can also come great change for the whole family. We are truly amazing, and when we put our minds to it, and believe in yourself. Can I follow us on the last one, except for another, not perspective, but another experience, the same language, but in a lot more shorter term. It, it does follow on, and it, one of the things that struck me along what Christy said was reminding us that an awful lot of the simple things about autism that we've now come to take as, you know, just normal pieces of information are still the baby steps that other people don't have into autism. And so not assuming that the amount of stuff that we know, you know, we, oh, as I say, we need to keep going over the basics. We need to keep telling people about the basics. And partly that's why we read out so many Facebook posts is because people, sometimes often newly diagnosed people, are ex expressing again and again the basics in different ways, in different language. And that's really where we need to continue to be. Hiding in a community where 
we're all talking our own secret language doesn't do the thing that Christie wanted. Christie was saying that it's necessary for our words, like the messages in the bottles that Morris described, to actually keep being thrown into the sea, keep falling on beaches so people can read those things and keep sticking to the simple messages, the basic messages, and, and repeat them. End of speech. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, both Emma and Christy say the same thing. And the thing that Emma was talking about is, you know, like we've shared before, it's like diagnosis is like the first step. But see, if you had a diagnosis and it was years ago, you kind of sort of forget to go back to those basics for people that don't have that, as you just say, have that step. But what I also like about the post is it's like it's sharing the experience where they thought their life was really bleak. They thought, you know, and how a diagnosis has turned things round and that's a positive way because in many ways for, for many people being diagnosed, because it's the word diagnosis I suppose, of with autism it's like, oh no, what's wrong with me? And then it's like why me, you know, why can't I be normal? I know there's no such thing, but that's the way society kind of puts it across at times, if not all the time. And it's just to kind of spin the positive in it is once you get that answer, it's a step forward and then you can make steps and, you know, build confidence within yourself. Obviously, it takes a lot of work. I mean, I've spent it myself. I mean, you know, before my diagnosis, I thought I was going mad. And I was going through puberty at the same time, so, you know, it was chaos. But uh, once I got that, it was a slow journey and that, you know, I've achieved things I never thought I'd ever achieve. So when someone, either th through Christy, when they, they talk about, you know, a, a long story, you know, a long description, which is needed, and sometimes through Emma, just through, you know, quite, it kind of summarises the feeling and the experience. It can do a lot of people a lot of good, but as you say, it's to remember the basics as well. Always go back to the beginning for other people, to share with people and just to, you know, give people hope. Because a lot of people, you know, feel they've lost all hope. And if you give hope just even just one person, it's, it's very worthwhile in doing that sort of approach. I think going over the same old ground in some ways is a really valuable thing to do. Finding different ways of saying some of the most basic things about the way neurodiversity is seen now in comparison to the old medical model of autism. Just keep saying it, keep giving people the opportunities, saying it to yourself, saying it out loud. It's all affirming, it's all a way of dealing with those other things that come, those depressions, those self-doubts. The simple stuff repeated. Well, that's a great way to end uh, this broadcast, um, our first uh, broadcast of the new year. And now we're in the swing of things now. So this is Spectrum Voices Conversation, here every uh, 6 p.m. to 7.30 p.m. UK time and 1pm to 2.30pm Eastern Standard Time, United States. The time difference, so 
Thanks again, and I look forward to speaking to you again next week. So, good night. Cheers, everyone.